Nick, we've been in Thailand for three days now, but we're about to cross the border into Laos, and I can't quite understand it, but you, you oddly seem disappointed. I had so many great ideas for the episode title, quite often the hardest part of the show that I work on. Oh, we work on. We work on. <laughs> um, do you want to hear some at the very least? Okay, all right. Yep, just give it to me. Okay, so remember that old song, My Girl, Thai Girl. That's all it's right. funnier than that. No, it's not. Keep uh, what about Cindy Lauper's tie after tie? That's a pretty good one. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, the Foo Fighters learn to tie. <laughs> what is the original of that? Oh my God, learn to fly. Oh, okay, yep, yep. Uh, what about Lucy in the tie with diamonds? Yeah, I appreciate that one. I came up with that one, in fact. <laughs> and this is this might be the front runner, ready? Bye bye, Miss American Tie. Oh! <laughs> but there's still time. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> Gabby, if we ever make it to Thailand and we're going to do a full episode of Where Are You Taking Me, I stand by each and every single one of those puns. Mm-hmm. They were funny. Your chortle was unjustified. Mm-hmm. I think it deserved a belly laugh. No. Stop giving me that look. Today, though, we're in Laos and we're looking across the Mekong River here and we can see Thailand. We're in Vientiane, which is the capital of Laos. We sort of started our journey at the very north in a place called Hang Jai, again, looking over the Mekong back into Thailand. So in a, in a rough sort of oblongy way, we've come full circle. Hello, my name is Nick King. It's really not a circle, it's more like a squiggly line that is the Mekong, but hello, welcome to Where Are You Taking Me? I'm Gabby Lyons. If you aren't already, you can follow our squiggly line journey through Laos on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me pod and on Facebook. Yeah, big question first, before we came to Laos, before we even we left Australia, you said that Laos is your favourite country. Well, of all the countries you've been to, why? It's really hard, and I know there's a lot of world out there that we haven't even touched yet, Nick. But Laos, for me, the last time I visited, um, I recognised I probably got a lot of nostalgia because it's a country I was really excited to visit after reading a couple of different autobiographies of veterans who returned to the country. But I met a lot of really beautiful people here, particularly people in the NGO sphere, and that is probably why I love Laos. There are so many small organisations in this country that are really trying to help out their local communities. It's really, really impressive. I could rattle off names for the next couple of hours, and I know we've only got a number of minutes, but seriously, if, if you're a philanthropic person or you just want to find a community that you can blend into and you can really leave your mark, I, I think that Laos is really that place. Before your heart beats entirely out of your chest, you get going. <laughs> yeah, go on, man. When we started planning this adventure well and truly over a year ago, we stumbled across one activity that, well, it seemed like a pipe dream. It seemed like something that was never going to fit into our backpacking Mm. schedule, let alone if we made it to Laos. But we said to each other, Nick, if we make it to Laos, there is one thing that we absolutely have to do. You know, what's really interesting was this is something we'd both sort of independently discovered before Mm. we'd even met. And when we realised we both knew its existence Mm -hmm. and wanted to do it, well, it was basically love at first sip. Sip? Oh, zip! Uh, the sounds of them, like, the the beginning, they, they sing like, and they stop, and then the second sound, so they would do like this, long and long and louder, louder, and like a, 
after that about four or five minutes they will sing together so when they sing together the sound is very different so I cannot follow them it's like a, like a you playing music and like that <laughs> know you all just want to listen to the natural ear candy that is the voices of singing gibbons for the next 10 minutes. Unfortunately, our story doesn't start here. But as a consolation prize, we'll keep it in the treetops. Right. Yep, that's it. Doing this? Yep. So bye. Bye, Joy. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Gibbon experience, set in 136,000 hectares of lush jungle. The Namkan National Park stretches across Laos, grazing both the Thai and Chinese borders. And you, along with your fellow hikers, are about to gain canopy access. Ziplining from hill to hill with depths of jungle and raging rivers 150 metres below. Are you ready? Oh, about... Uh, about seven seventy-six. Yes, the total zipline. And what is the longest zipline? Uh, the longest zipline is almost six hundred meter. And do you have to use your brake on that particular zipline, or do you get to go as fast as you like? Uh, you have to go fast. You need you need fast that one. Yes, <laughs> don't break anymore. Yeah. This is Vong, one of the many local guides who will take you through the national park. Originally studying to be a lawyer. Vong started working with the Gibbon Experience three years ago and says he has totally fallen in love with nature. So I try to be like a, you can work in the office and outside, you stay with the nature. If you respect the nature, the nature will respect you as well. So you have to do like a good thing, don't, don't try to do the bad thing for the nature. <laughs> yeah, the first time is very scary as well for yeah. the cable, yeah. <laughs> But you got used to it and now you fly around on these ziplines doing some pretty incredible tricks. Yes. Where do you get your confidence from? <laughs> oh, before, I, I, I never like this, but um, I learned by myself and also with my friend as well. The cable, when you, when you don't make the end, it's a problem for you because um, like you right now, <laughs> you stop and then you monkey like that. The views from these ziplines are incredible. But for Vong, his favourite part of the experience is being on the ground with all of the hikers. When you're hiking, very enjoying and funny because we have the water for a crossing, zip lining, leeches <laughs> and waterfall. <laughs> so it's funny. And so here, um, like, um, we, we meet a lot of people and they, like, uh, they talk with you, they give the idea for oh. you. And I almost forgot to mention, when the sun sets over the jungle, you don't go home. The final zipline for the day will fly through the trees and land in your very own treehouse. It's like a big kid's dream. Two stories, thatched palm leaf roofing, snuggly double beds, and a very popular outdoor shower. Check out the hashtag. The waterfall tour is that the treehouse, there are two treehouses, the tallest in the world. House number five is almost 50 meters from the ground, yes. 
48 meter from the ground. Yeah. That's the one that gave uh, Nick a bit of a fright. He wasn't quite ready for that kind of height, I don't think. <laughs> yes. Oh, the treehouse. Um, it's very nice and very strong. So if the treehouse like uh, not not shaking or like moving, like a storm coming, so everything is fun. Now, if the Gibbon experience sounds like your kind of adventure, full disclosure, it's not the cheapest activity you can sign up for in Laos. But your money does go towards helping plenty of people. So um, for the money, like uh, we got about 140 people working for the Gibbons. So some of the money that you pay here, about 20 or 25 percent up to the government. So the other person for the for the local guys, because we have a lot of uh, local village here, so we paid some money for them to help being us take care of the area, the national park here because um, we have about seven to ten rangers to protect the areas. So like... That's uh, to protect from poachers? Yeah, for poaching, for, for protecting like uh, animals or natures and also um, we're helping like uh, money for the, uh, the local people that um, they, they cannot go to school and we build some uh, school for the local people they studying as well, like a the Bantu village. We helping we book we buy some book, or we helping them building the house as well. The Gibbon experience is by no means an amusement park. From sustainable agriculture, supporting local villages, reforestation projects, and most importantly, protecting those singing gibbons you met earlier. When your feet eventually meet solid ground again you'll leave knowing your cash has gone to a good cause. So no brakes, just go all the way? Um, do not break. Right. Just in case, when you're fast. Okay. Don't die. You got any other good advice? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So firstly, thanks for outing me for being a bit of a fraidy cat when it comes to the treehouse. <laughs> Keep in mind though, this is like 50 metres up in a tree. And the, the one thing that really put me off wasn't so much the swaying or the storm. If you're going to be in a treehouse or anywhere for a number of hours, there's going to be a point where you have to go to the bathroom, right? <laughs> the bathroom there, it's, it's like a veranda. Mm -hmm. So anyone that's been to Wajiro, I imagine you've had to use a squat dunny. So instead of sitting on it, you got to kind of stand on top, hunch, do your business and go. The problem with the loo there was, it was over slats. So they were open slats where you could, whilst on the loo, look straight down 50 metres. That was really terrifying. Like <laughs> sitting there and looking straight down, I had vertigo. The experience though was amazing. Yeah, it was definitely a bit of fear conquering for me. I mean goodness, the very first zip line and you realise that you're 150 metres in the air. Oh man, it was it was terrifying, but by the time I got to the second zip line, I was ready to go again. It was phenomenal. There was no practice, there was no casual introduction. No. It's get on and go, isn't it? It was fantastic. We're out there for 3 days of trekking and zip lining. Couldn't recommend it any higher. When I come back, I will be doing it again. Ditto. และสําหรับในปีนี้เป็นปีที่ดีเซ็ตกันแน่เนาะ
เมืองลุ่งพบางได้รับประกาศการสร้างตั้งเป็นนครลุ่งพบางอย่างเป็นทางการแล้วก็ 
how good are the sandwiches? <laughs> there are baguette vendors everywhere, and they're like a dollar fifty for like a massive sub. Mm-hmm. This is one of those moments where maybe our Australianism comes through. Like the fact that avocados were an option, we were like, "Whoa, are those? Yeah, are you real?" <laughs> it was so great. I mean, did I tell you about the sandwiches? God, oh my they were God, bloody Nick. good sandwich. <laughs> If you're going to head over to Lao, though, it's almost inevitable that you will end up in Luan Prabang. So do spend a bit of time there. Allow a couple of extra days as you can. I loved it and I wish we'd had two weeks there. Don't kid yourself, Nick. We're moving there. We're going to live there. We're going to buy that shack that you keep talking about. Yay! lots of people who come to Asia, whether you be a traveller, a backpacker, just on holiday, you come to Asia and you want to have your photo taken with an elephant or maybe riding an elephant. And we were no different. We totally wanted to get up close and personal with these gorgeous animals. But we were a little bit speculative. If we were to flash back to Southeast Asia all of five years ago, visiting elephants would entail a banana feeding session, maybe bathing them in a river, before having the animal bend its knee so that you could climb aboard its back into a kind of mishmash bamboo structure on some rugs and perhaps traipse around a national park. Once you'd taken your final photos for the day and been loaded back onto your tour bus, a shackle would then be locked around the elephant's leg until the following morning. I don't know how that makes you feel, but... For me, uh, it's just not great. It is so grim. Mm -hmm. It is not something I want a part of. No. And luckily, these days when it comes to animal welfare, plenty of backpackers have cottoned on to the mistreatment of these gorgeous grey giants and have actively stopped attending camps that harm or neglect the animal. Do you remember in Cambodia it was super interesting to see that basically nobody was riding elephants around there anymore, so there's definitely been a shift Mm. in the way uh, backpackers think about the way animals are being treated, which is great. Even still, when we arrived in the Wan Prabang, we went into our hostel and they had like a rack that had brochures of all the stuff you can do around town. And we counted 14 different elephant riding experiences just in LP. Not even a big town, so many brochures. I was actually shocked. But one particular company jumped out. They were stressing a more natural experience and they are called Mandalau. The matri asked 50, yeah? And the second is the tuk. Tuk, she uh, smaller than the coon. 40 and cool it 45 yeah elephant and human quite similar who owner it a cheap who owner who has a lot of, of the experience who younger follow the owner right who owner go in front in the morning when we do the chore matriarch go in front baby flow the matriarch and the mom flow the baby and protect elephant and natural behavior family animal let elephant go first yeah, coming. Oh, elephant kiss you. Elephant love you very much. So now we go this way. We take a walk with them a little bit. We are moving through the jungle alongside three elephants, all towering over my five foot six stature. They move slowly, occasionally ripping off sticks to eat, flapping their ears and investigating your pockets for hidden bananas, while their mahouts speak softly to them, assisting in guiding them through the jungle. As I am walking next to Kun, I am forming a connection resting my hand on her side, stroking her trunk, and watching her tail swing side to side, flapping her ears loudly next to mine. This is the ethos of Mandalau. So the work is to make them healthy and happy is walking, eating, playing, 
That's all the work for our elephants. <laughs> Not a bad life. Not a bad life. <laughs> In a nutshell, Mandalau is a non-riding elephant experience. But what's more, they are a team of passionate people rescuing adult and baby elephants from riding camps, logging industries, and illegal exports across the border. Their aim is not only to rehabilitate the animals, but hopefully release them back into the wild. Uh, my name is Prasop, uh, Chip Prasop. I work really long time. My background is forestry. When you work deep in the jungle, you got very big help from the elephants. In Thailand, 30 years ago, we have very, very big problem with the declination of elephants. What kind of things we have to do to make the balance in terms of the welfare, good habitat, understanding, health care. 27 years is what. Pressup is considered the elephant whisperer, having worked with elephants for nearly three decades all over the world, rescuing circus elephants, conducting welfare checks in zoos, and now in Laos, assisting in conservation efforts and hopefully increasing the elephant population throughout the country. I'm really lucky. I never consider it is it's the work. I never feel it is my work. I can do it every single day. I'm really lucky. It's not news that travellers and backpackers have started to turn their backs on elephant riding facilities, and are better educated when it comes to animal welfare. But what has this change of lifestyle meant for men and women who have worked with elephants all their lives? These people are the Mahouts. In introducing a friendly program, um, Take Away Hooks and Shackles, what did this mean for the Mahouts that came with the elephants? Did they have to change their perception as well? One of the most difficult things. The first time when we started the program, we said, please, no hook. They said, how you can control the elephant without hook? I said, you need to use a hook because you want to bring them to the place that they don't want to go. After we take, this is all the work. It's walking, eating, playing. And the mood asked me, is this our work? Yes, it's your work. So they throw all the hook away. We met with a mahout named Khan, who has been working with elephants for 15 years. Our trekking guide, Ying, translated his story. It's very easy. In what industry did Khan first start work? Yeah, so let me check. Um, yeah, many years. He said uh, his first experience about the logging. After logging, he changed to be a mahout and riding. But he don't ride the elephant and uh, let the customer that ride and he go in front of the elephant, save the elephant, attack the, uh, attack the tourists. Yeah. Has Khan noticed a difference in the way that the elephant responds to him yeah. since not using hooks or chains? Has that relationship changed? Yeah. Uh, the reason they don't use hook, use chain, use uh, hammer, because they're training elephant by the elephant friendly training. Do they have a happier relationship together now? Because always when elephant flapping the ear, I mean elephant very happy. Yeah, they're good to communicate each other. Because Mahu, they have many, many, many uh, work for teaching them. They, they don't say the Lao language, but they say the Mahu language. Uh, Mahu, Lao, and Thai, and Cambodia are quite similar. They use a similar work to train the elephant. What it all boils down to 
is what kind of world you personally want to see for elephants. I asked Pressop about the competition, all the other camps out there that are still shackling their elephants, riding them, and using hooks. He explained, in order for them to change, it comes down to balance, providing welfare for elephants, but still providing entertainment for guests. He said it's up to the traveller to choose which they prioritise. From the elephants you have here, are they happy? Can you tell that they are happy and how? I completely believe that they are happy because you will hear the very happy sound, X sound. <laughs> oh, I'm okay. I'm following you. I'm very happy. But give me more banana. Yeah, you will have this swine all the time. Yeah, I not just love the elephant. I respect them. I consider them the same level as me. When I feel I want to do something good to my children, I feel the same when I do everything to the elephant. So every easy make the explanation to the guests to make them happy. It is do everything the same as you do with your children. It is all about I respect them. Most bus trips, I'd probably put my headphones in and listen to a podcast and, you know, drown out the hot, holy gravel roads that make up Southeast Asia. But um, that's just about impossible on this trip, isn't it, Nick? And why would you want to drown out this classic loud banger? Let's be honest. Are you, are you loving this? Is this your jam? Um, no, I feel like I'm trapped in it, actually. The two speakers either side of us are, are blasting it, and yeah, I feel stuck. I cannot stress enough. If you are planning on catching a bus throughout Laos to any of its destinations, it is like playing the most intense game of corners I have ever played in my life. So they do this thing, and let's be real about this. <laughs> Bus drivers will almost always try and put foreigners in the very back seat mm -hmm. across the wheels, which is the most uncomfortable place to ride because you'll feel every one of the two to three to four, maybe five or even 6,000 bumps along your journey, which we copped. Plus, it's right between the speakers that are playing that song on repeat, which is now etched into my mind forever. Mm -hmm. There are pros and cons to the loud bus system, though. Uh, the pro is that there are buses going everywhere all the time and they're not hard to locate. The cons, however, is the incredible discomfort which we discovered on several occasions, plus the cost. Yeah. Buses in Laos were far more expensive than equivalent journeys in other countries. Some of the trips were costing us as much, if not slightly more, than a night's accommodation. Yeah, I think there were a couple of different trips that cost us somewhere between $17 and $25 to go on a four-hour trip. Seriously, when I was paying 4 or $5 to stay in a hostel... Unbelievable. And if you're a savvy backpacker, you might think, well, I'll just get a night bus and that'll save me a night's accommodation. They don't really exist either. No. There's a couple, but not many. Laos not a very big country, so it doesn't take too long to get around. One trip that I thoroughly enjoyed, though, and I would recommend it to anybody, is taking the longboat from Hongzhai, which is right up the very top, right near that Thai-Lao border, all the way down to Long Prabang. It'll take two days in the slow boat, because <laughs> it's a slow boat. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have to stay overnight somewhere along the way at a town called Pak Beng. I had a great time on it. You? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I would have liked to meet a couple more people, maybe get everyone a little bit more chatty. I think we just hit one of those days where everyone was either uh, hungover 
tired, had just got off a bus from Chiang Mai and God knows that's a long journey. But as far as relaxation time, downtime, I read my book for the first time mm-hmm. in months. It's just a really pleasant way to get a sense of the country you've just entered. It's it's a really fun and affordable way to literally cruise down the Mekong. I think it takes about seven hours each day. The second day, you'll also pick up a lot of locals, <laughs> a lot of bags of rice, maybe some chickens. And as well, like you're floating down the river, so you come across people who are on speedboats. You have people who are paddling across the river to cross to another town. Or on top of that, you have kids just having a swim and having a play who want to wave at you because the boat coming past is a daily routine for them. It's, it's really cool. For many of the villages that you pass along the way, the river is the only way in and out. That yeah. is their highway, so it's fascinating to see the way people live. And they're also excited to see you drop by. Mm. So we caught the slow boat from way up north down into Luang Prabang. And it's from Luang Prabang that we kind of broke the usual backpacker trail. It took us about six hours to head east to a town called Phong Savan. It's not really on the way to anywhere unless you're making your way towards Vietnam. So if you decide to follow in our footsteps, be prepared to do some backtracking to continue on your travels throughout the lower part of Laos. The reason we made this journey, though, was to see something pretty spectacular and totally unique to Asia. It's an ancient and mysterious site that you won't find anywhere else in the world. There was one English geographer who visited the sites in the late 19th century. And he said, you know, from afar, you couldn't tell what the jars were. First, they looked like tents. He got closer, then they looked like cows. And then slowly got very close and realized that they were at stone jars. And it was amazing because, you know, they range from one to three meters high. It's a story of whiskey, war, death, and giants. Maybe. Ten hours north of the Lao capital, just on the outskirts of Savan, you'll find the mysterious Plain of Jars. Now, consider the profile of a jar, the kind that might normally store peanut butter or jam. It's tall, round, with thick walls and hollow in the centre. Now, imagine this shape created out of solid stone with walls measured by the inch, numbering in the hundreds and clustered across an open landscape. And that's just at site one. My name is Linda Susan McIntosh. I have a PhD in anthropology, communications and textiles. And I'm a consulting curator for the project that's redesigned the Provincial Museum of Sion Kwang. When did you first hear about the site? Uh, well, probably I visited the first time in 1998. And so I was able to go to three sites at that time because they had, you know, had been cleared you know, to some degree of the unexploded ordinances. If you're standing there and looking out across one section, what will you see? Well, the sites are um, unusual. Most of them are at high elevations compared to living settlements. So if you go to site one, it's on the top of a plateau. So you have a plain and there's a small kind of limestone hill. And so that's why it's called the Plain of Jars. But if you go to other sites, they tend to be at the, you know, at the very top of hills. So you're always looking down at settlements below. Do we know exactly how many there are in total? So far, they've discovered over a thousand jars. They've discovered 99 sites so far, primarily in Siongkong province, but there are also a couple in Lomprabang province. From the top of the hill, you can look out over the entirety of the Plain of Jars Site 1. 
and it's it's a lot more complex than I was expecting. There's a lot to take in. Your eyes are sort of darting from one thing to the next, just trying to consume it all at once. There is the pattern of the jars, and they move in almost a semicircular direction around the site itself. There's more than 300 here, so so you're drawn to that straight away. And they're huge. They're not all huge. Some are small, but even the big ones, I can see tourists that must be 150 or even 200 meters away, and they're still dwarfed by the size of these jars. In the center, there's a mound, and there's a cave that goes into that. We'll chat more about that in a moment. But amongst the jars, you'll find a few trees but for the most part, the other thing that really stands out are the remnants of war. This area was very heavily bombed during the Vietnam War, and you can just see craters. There must be more than a dozen of them that are dotted around the site. Some of them have, have blown the jars to pieces, and you can see some jars laying just like, like granite shrapnel across the earth. Research across the site has been almost at a standstill because of the influence of the Vietnam War. How has that affected the site up until today? Um, yes, you do find um, evidence of disturbances from the war, especially at Site 1, because that was a major battlefield. So you have trenches, you have bomb craters. They found you know, remnants of shrapnel and different pieces of metal, as well as bombs. Um, so with the wars, you do find damage to the jars. I mean, some that were studied by Colony in, you know, in the 1930s, the French um, geologists who first studied the jars. I mean, some of her, you know, her studied jars, they can't find anymore because they were destroyed in the war. And if you go to site one and other sites, you can see broken jars from, you know, from missile shellings and whatnot. For every broken jar, there are many hundreds, which for years have been left untouched. And it's only now that researchers are gaining access to study the sites and closing in on the origin and purpose of the jars. You used the word mystery before. Yeah. What are some of the theories behind the origin of the jars? Well, they're megalithic sites, so they're related to funerary practices. With the current research that's um, being carried out, they can't find any evidence of living settlement. So no one's actually lived in these areas over time. They've always been used as cemeteries. Do you know much more about the death rituals themselves and how they might have been associated with the jars? That's still a mystery because they're finding both primary and secondary burials. So primary burials when they just place the corpse in the ground. And secondary burials is when they keep the body in one place temporarily and basically until the flesh falls off the bones and then they rebury the remains. So usually they take the bones and place them in the ground or they place them in a jar or a casket or somewhat. And we still don't know what the jars are. I mean, some people say that they were used to, like, distill the bodies. You know, that hasn't been confirmed. At the centre of the Plain of Jars Site 1, you'll find a massive limestone cave, and it's thought to have been used as a crematorium. Madeleine Kalani, the French geologist and amateur archaeologist, excavated the site in the early 1930s, and she found burnt teeth and also bone fragments to back the theory. You can take a look inside the cave when you visit the site, but I warn you, it's not entirely free of danger. Gabby, this might even be the, the quietest place in all of Laos. This is one of the very first spots that French archaeologists looked at back in the early 1930s. What they found down here was some burnt bones, charcoal, and that backs that theory that the plant of jars is used as a, as a burial ground today to look inside. It's... Gosh, I have to say it's probably 25 or 30 odd metres high. And you can see sort of dotted around. Oh my god, it's a snake! My recommendation, 
would be not to go into the cave. The Plain of Jars is a true archaeological wonder and has in the past been compared to the likes of Stonehenge and also the statues of Easter Island. And like these ancient sites, the Plain of Jars has a number of, let's say, legendary theories surrounding their origin. Some of the locals have slightly more mythological theories behind the jars. Uh, yes, there are legends like the jars were for distilling the local alcohol that's made out of rice. So there was a legend there. There was the founder of the Mongpuan kingdom. He defeated like an evil monarch in the area, and so to celebrate the you know the his victory, they um, distilled alcohol and they also used these jars as as cups. So. I cannot believe this podcast is only six episodes old and already twice I've been attacked by a snake. You were not attacked by a snake. It fell from the sky in that cave and scared the crap out of me. Let's be fair as well, you legged it out of that cave, Nick. You left me behind. No, no, I ran out of the cave because I wanted to clear the way and make sure your path to safety was unoccupied, okay? <laughs> I cleared everything out of the way. I made sure it was safe. I was like, Gabby, it's time. Let's get out of here. I was basically the fire warden at that cave. Some people might even say hero. The Plain of Jars, though, was, was amazing. It was really spectacular. We've got some great photos on Instagram. I'd never heard of it. Were you satisfied? Totally. This is something I'd heard of. Totally out of the blue, actually. I think my stepdad mentioned it to me and said it was something that was on his bucket list. Sorry, Chris, beat you there. But it was phenomenal. And there's no real other word I can think of to describe the jars other than otherworldly. Seriously, you can sit there and speculate as many different odd theories, whether they be the whiskey jars, the giants, or the human caskets. Oh man, there's so much to discuss here. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm really glad we went out of our way. Yeah, if you have even a very mild interest in archaeology, could not recommend this spot enough. Something Linda mentioned in there that you might not have picked up on was the term UXO, which stands for Unexploded Ordnance. Now, during the war in Vietnam, Lao gained the unenviable title of the most heavily bombed country on earth. Two million tons of bombs and explosives were dropped on Laos, most of which were cluster bombs. And let me give you some facts. Throughout the nine years of war, there were 580,000 bombing missions over Laos. If you do the maths, that means a bomb was dropped every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. When the war finished, the Lao people were kind of just left to deal with it. 80 million of these things were still out there and still just as explosive and hidden. Kids have since picked some up thinking they were toys. Metal scavengers and young kids saw the bombs as a form of revenue and would pick them up. Men would go out to sow crops for their livelihood and strike one. Just take a moment to consider what this means for these people. This has led to countless fatalities and thousands of amputees. And this is where COPE steps in. They are an incredible organisation, providing prosthetics to families all across the country, providing physiotherapy, rehabilitation and psychosocial services, and ultimately helping these people get back on track. Not to mention, all of these services are free. This year alone, COPE have assisted over 1,300 people, and when we asked if their work will ever wrap up, they said it was unlikely. When you visit VNTN, COPE have an amazing visitor centre. It's the number one thing to do on TripAdvisor. It's the number one recommendation by Lonely Planet. 
When we went out there for a look yesterday, and despite weeks of emailing back and forth, we were unable to secure an interview with any of the staff there, and it's not because they weren't keen for a chat, but let me put it this way. You don't know red tape until you've tried to get anything okayed by the Lao government. So this isn't an ad for COPE. It hasn't in any way been sponsored. It's just exceptionally important work that they do. You can make a very real difference to the lives of the Lao people just by stopping by the visitor centre for a look. It'll cost you nothing. You can make a donation if you want to. And if you don't make it to Lao on your next adventure, we certainly urge you to check them out on YouTube. So if you're thinking of heading to Lao, you'll almost certainly stop by or at the very least pass through a town called Vang Vang. And if you are planning on stopping in Vang Vang, it's probably for the tubing. It has a pretty notorious history, so let's bring you up to speed. The evolution of Vang Vang from sleepy farming village to backpacker mecca began in 1999 with the launch of tubing on the Nam Song River. Inflated inner tubes were rented out to thrill-seeking backpackers to float downstream and they came by the thousands. The construction of bars along the river took off to lure in the thirsty tubers, quickly followed by swings, slides and zip lines. Cocktails were being served up by the bucket, along with drugs, printed right there on the menu. Van Vieng had become a hedonistic paradise for Western travellers where you could get anything except regulation, and tragedy quickly followed. By the end of 2011, 25 fatalities had been recorded on the river, mostly British and Australian 20-somethings who died from drowning associated with drug and alcohol use, combined with injuries from the aforementioned slides, swings and zip lines landing over shallow water. Devastated parents began looking for answers from the Lao government and the response was swift. 24 bars were shut down and by the end of 2012, most were demolished. Tourism took a massive hit but it did leave the door open for the rebirth of Van Vieng. Today, Van Vieng pits itself as the adventure capital of Laos, where instead of drugs on the menu, you'll find trekking, kayaking and rock climbing. As for the tubing, on a much smaller scale, it still exists, now with full health and safety regulations. But if you're looking for the rave, well, you're in the wrong place. So we stopped by Vang Vang and yes, we did have a go at the tubing. Clearly I knew of its reputation in the past. Today though, it's a far cry from what it was. When we went down the river, two bars, not 24 that were open, mm -hmm. they're only selling alcohol and there was food. There, there was a great sense of responsibility about the event. But whether you, you enjoy a drink or not, sitting in a river, floating in a tube for just over four kilometres and admiring the limestone casts and the rural villages and the people at work it's a really beautiful way to see part of the country. It beats the hell out of a bus or a boat or any other way you might see. Especially as the sun starts to set over the river, you get to see those beautiful sunsets that lots of people take photos of. It's, it's just such a picturesque part of the country that you can see things there that I didn't see anywhere else along the way, particularly the limestone formations. I think that's just it. Vang Vang has been known for its tubing, but there's so many other things that you can do there. It's not a one-trick pony, so if you do want to go to Vang Vang, you're not really up for the tubing, you don't want to get into that party scene. That was our experience, that's something that we wanted to do, but we wanted to find out a little bit more from other people that we met along the way, and what they knew of Vang Vang, and why they turned up in the first place. So my name is Dave Tipping. 
of England. Of England. Of England. My usual occupation is zookeeper, caring for the for otters and wolves. How have you found yourself here in Bang Bang? What brought you here? So it's all a kind of word of mouth. So tubing was great. Um, the kind of tubing down the river was amazing. It was really casual, really fun. Um, drinking. Good vibes. So yeah, so I, I heard about all the deaths on the on the river, but I, I wouldn't have heard that unless my wife uh, told me about it. So I'm kind of like news blind to, to everything, and I just kind of like go with the flow. And then if, if my wife didn't tell me, I, w- I would know nothing uh, about it. So I just kind of go with the flow, and every every kind of stop that I, I hit is is something that kind of comes naturally rather than me researching it. Uh, Susie Tipping from uh, the south of the UK. <laughs> so um, through sort of friends and things who had already been here, they told us that like Laos was somewhere that we'd really enjoy for its like relaxed atmosphere, but that there's still a party scene and being like a little bit older, not older, but as a traveller, like we're kind of 30 rather than 20 and we got told it was a vibe that we'd really like. Um, we had heard about the tubing before coming and um, we knew it was something we'd enjoy, but we were aware of all the problems that it had in the past and it made me kind of Google and just look up where they were at now and I felt like happy that we'd still enjoy it. But we spent two nights here and yesterday we just spent time kind of like wandering and um, enjoying like the place and just chilling at the local bars, spending some time like just looking at the mountains and sitting in hammocks and just taking in like views that we wouldn't get back home basically. My name is Mario, Mario Marcelo, I'm from Indonesia, I'm 29 years old. So Mario, how did you hear about Vang Vang? So Vang Vien, I didn't really have any idea before about Vang Vien. And then I had this friend in Jakarta, she's Moroccan. She told me about this place. I told her that I'm going away for a bit while. Uh, and she told me I have to go to Vang Vien. I have to try everything there, the tubing, the blue lagoons and everything. So I put that on the list. So yeah. that's how I got to Vang Vien. So you went tubing today. What was your experience? It was really tiring. I was not expecting that. I didn't know that swimming, mostly swimming is involved in it. I thought I just got to get, get carried by the current. But again, really tired. I was supposed to party tonight and then I can't really do it. So yeah, but it was really an awesome experience. Yeah. I don't think I can find it anywhere else. So other than tubing, is there anything else in Vang Vang that you're excited to see or be a part of? The Blue Lagoon, of course. Probably they have three lagoons. I'm going to get two of them. The recommended ones by the people that I've met here. Do you think there's more to Vang Vang than just the tubing? Definitely there are more. I've seen a lot of people doing trekking, off-road motorcycles, dune buggy. I've seen a lot and I see a lot of mountains. The view is great. I think there's a lot of things to see besides the tubing. I'm Jadine and I'm 24 from London. I hadn't heard that much. I heard it was like a party town um, and it was a good place to go for like a good time. And then I heard that it was also good if you like adventure stuff. So if you like trekking or hiking or anything like that, I heard that there was, it was easy to like book little day tours and stuff. But that was it really. I hadn't heard too many notions. So yeah, it was mainly positive things, but I still was a bit like, okay, how much of a party town is it? I wasn't sure. So what have you found? You've been tubing today. What was your experience? I actually, I really liked it. I was actually a bit of a scaredy cat. So I'm not like the strongest swimmer in the world. And I was a bit like, you know, if it's going to be a lot of drinking. And actually it was fine. Like, I definitely think even if you're not like the strongest swimmer, as long as you don't overdrink and are careful, you can have a really nice time. I think it exceeded my expectations. The fact that it was a lot of fun and it wasn't as dangerous as I thought it would be initially. I think it's one of those places where it really is just kind of the party person that you are. Like, even I've been to Ibiza 
Um, and I'd say that was more, that felt more pressure to be like, drink, drink, drink. I think this has changed a bit. I think its history has forced it to kind of reevaluate itself. And I think now that it's still got its roots, but actually you really don't have to go as heavy now if you don't want to because of everything that's happened in the past. Yeah. So do you think if anyone's travelling through Southeast Asia, should they write Bang Bang off the list or is it still worth being a destination? I think it's definitely worth coming. Like, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, go out of my way. Like, so if you weren't naturally passing through, like, Luang Prabang and then... Yeah. Um, going through Laos I wouldn't like I don't know if I'd like to seek it out yeah. but I definitely think if you're in Laos and in Luampabang and it's yeah I'd, I'd make an effort to come and see it if I wasn't far away yeah. for, for sure. the tubing or for Bang Bang as the town itself probably for the tubing <laughs> It's the tail end of our Lao episode. In summary, I had a really good time here. It's one of those something for everyone kind of countries. We were only here for about three weeks, but you can really cram a lot of stuff in, lots of different activities. It's not just temple watching for days or a beach for a week. There's a lot of stuff to do here. I think if you don't have a year to take off and see the world, you've only got a handful of weeks that you can get off over Christmas. Lao is one of those countries that you can walk into, feel like you're a part of the community. It's a really special place. I really love it here. It's usually at this point of the podcast we like to share with you some local music that we've recorded. Mm -hmm. We feel this time around, though, it's, it's our social responsibility as broadcasters just to share a little more of the music that you will hear on a bus for about six hours at a time just to prepare you for it. So just imagine this on repeat for six hours through two speakers on the side of your head. You've been listening to some very terrible Lao pop music on the Where You Take Me podcast. My name is Nick King. <laughs> and I'm Gabby Lyons. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to our episode from Wow. For more, you can find us on Instagram at Where You Take Me Pod. You can also find us on Facebook. And if you do like it, please hit subscribe to our podcast. Please leave us a review and share it with your mates as well. Now, we have noticed that we've been getting a number of downloads in Sri Lanka. You'll never guess where we're heading to next, guys. Ooh, Ooh. where could it be? Ooh, the suspense. Ooh, where are we going? See you soon, Sri Lanka. Let's do the Thai Morp again. No, no, that's not good enough. What about Kanye West? Touch the Thai. Uh, and I know you like Justin Timberlake, so you can't resist Thai Me a River. Oh, that's actually quite clever. <laughs> and what about some Robbie Williams? Let me entertain you. No, you're stretching it now. My talents are wasted on you.